it seems like creatives always get a bad rap. From childlike tantrums and ridiculous green room requests, strange superstitions, and even self-mutilation, it's clear that artists have plenty of strange habits. But they've also made a pretty big impact on the world. Hi, I'm Kate Rooney. And I'm Jess Scuffy. And you're listening to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform. In this podcast, we'll be uncovering the fascinating myths and shocking stories behind the artists we love, or in some cases, love to hate, as we try to determine, are creatives the worst? Welcome to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle. My name is Kate Rooney, and I'm joined with my lovely co-host, Jess Guffey. Hi, Kate. Hi, Jess. Long time no see. I know. It's been forever. How are you? <laughs> it's been like 12 hours. Um, feeling a little scared about that. Way too um, long. <laughs> my dog's tail is hitting me right now. That's it kind nice. of looks like your tail is wagging. <laughs> <laughs> In case you guys didn't know, Jess has a tail. <laughs> oh, she was thanks, born buddy. with it. We, we accept her for who she is. And uh, it's, it's kind of nice because you can tell when Jess is happy because her tail wags. <laughs> wow. Wow, I have no words for that. <laughs> I mean, would you like to tell everyone why you decided to keep your tail instead of having it surgically removed? <laughs> it all started on a cold, rainy night. No. <laughs> <laughs> Off to a great start. Well, for Jess, more fantasy stories from Kate's brain, visit <laughs> katetellstories.com. I wonder if that's a real URL. We should look into buying that domain. <laughs> So yeah, check that out. Also check out designpickle.com slash podcast to listen to more episodes and strange tales. And I believe you have a strange tale for us today. Well, let's see what you did there. Great. Thank Very you. subtle. Uh, I do. Like many of the people that we've done before, this person is quite the character. Lots of conflicting information out there, as you can imagine. So... I would like to tell everyone that, yet again, this is based just on our research and what we have found on the interwebs. Hmm. Um, so if you have conflicting information or another story that you'd like to share with us about this person or any of the people that we've covered, please let us know at podcast at designpickle.com. And uh, you can yell at us too. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, we're not. <laughs> Let's not encourage that. <laughs> you know what? You do you. Do whatever you feel is right. Yeah. So today, Kate, we will be talking about someone that is considered one of the greatest musicians of all time, mm -hmm. someone that has multiple albums on Rolling Stone's list of greatest albums of all time. Don't know what happened to my voice there. This person has been depicted in multiple films and plays. They're in pretty much every major music hall of fame. They've inspired so many artists, countless artists. Considered one of the most legendary storytellers of all time. Ooh. Today, Kate, we are talking about Johnny Cash. <gasps> oh, I'm jealous. I wanted to cover him. <laughs> Without a doubt, one of my favorite musicians of all time. Yeah, I have to say I was listening to him exclusively while researching, and it just, it was such a vibe, you know? Mm -hmm. Such a good oh, vibe. Oh, man, I'm, I'm jelly. You, you said before in the last one, oh, someone I wanted to cover. Well, now you stole one of mine, so i got to cross him off the list. Love Johnny Cash. Uh, Same. And Walk the Line is, is one of my favorite movies. I have not seen the full thing, so this is a rare occurrence where you have seen a movie that I have not seen. Wow. But Alternate not, universe. I know. 
one of the reasons, just like purely anecdotal right now, but one of the reasons I wanted to cover him is because of Folsom Prison Blues. Mm. Three of my four family members on my mom's side live in Folsom, California. <laughs> so I've been there countless times. I've seen the prison and like every single time we're like, oh, Johnny Cash. So it's like weirdly always been a part of my life in that way, mm-hmm. um, purely from a geographical perspective. But I also just <laughs> love his music and think he's an interesting person. So mm-hmm. without further ado, let's talk about Johnny Cash. Let's do it. Heck yes. So, in 1932, Johnny Cash was born in Kingsland, Arkansas to Carrie and Ray Cash. He was the middle child of seven children. So many kids. (laughs) So many kids. Too many. Yes. The family was primarily of English and Scottish descent, and they actually had a keen interest in their heritage, and Johnny took a particular interest in this, so traced his heritage all the way back to their Scottish roots and found some interesting stuff that's really not worth mentioning, but... It's important to note that he really liked looking into that and was very intrigued by how far back their roots could be found in Scotland. Hmm. Now, when he was born, his mom wanted to name him John and his dad wanted to name him Ray after him. So they compromised by naming him John Ray. <laughs> so very original. Oh, there, you, there you go. It's all about compromise. It's secret all about to compromise. A, a healthy marriage. <laughs> so for most of his childhood, he actually went by JR, not Johnny. That wasn't until later. Now, in 1935, it was obviously the Great Depression, and the family moved to a New Deal colony that gave poor families an opportunity to work land that they later had the opportunity to own. So they worked on cotton fields, and he actually started working on the fields when he was five years old. He would drag Um. buckets of water around, and then when he turned eight, he actually started picking cotton. And he had back pain and like other ailments from this hard labor, even as a child, which foreshadowing... Perhaps, but yeah. Eight years old. Eight years old. Not an easy life to live, but I mean, pretty much everyone in the country was living a similar lifestyle then. So yeah, back pain when you're eight years old. Like That's That's rough. Yeah, not great. But during his labors, when he started singing, um, that's kind of how he passed the time while he was working. He also liked to listen to the radio a lot and particularly liked listening to the Carter family, which is foreshadowing oh yeah he was also fascinated by frankenstein the character (laughs) and (laughs) which hold on like the monster yes the monster (laughs) i know people are gonna be like well it's not actually frankenstein's frankenstein's monster just putting that out there that's so true thank you for bringing that up we know okay (laughs) we know (laughs) you might say wow super random that you mentioned this fascination frankenstein but i thought it was important because he had said that he was very sympathetic to the character and said it was someone made up of bad parts but trying to do good which i feel like kind of encompasses johnny himself in a weird Mm. way and we'll dive into why that is but thought that was poignant to mention that even as a young child he was feeling sympathy for a monster that was fictional so Hmm. anyways working on the cotton fields also gave him a lifelong sympathy for working class people he always would write songs about them and as we know talk about them so this experience of working in the cotton fields with his family at a young age was very important to his life In 1944, his older brother, Jack, passed away after being cut by a table saw. Oh, that's right. Very gruesome. 
like not going to go into the details because just really disturbing to read about. But essentially after the accident, he survived for a week and then ended up passing away. And in his autobiography, Johnny described that day as having a weird feeling. And I guess his mom did as well. They felt like something was in the air that was going to go wrong. And they actually tried to convince Jack not to go to work that day because of it, because they felt so strongly that something bad was going to happen. But he ended up going because the family needed money and he felt like he couldn't take the day off just because they had a strange feeling about it. So after he passed away, Johnny described Jack as his best friend and said that Jack loved listening to him sing more than anything. And while his dad told Johnny that he was wasting his time with music, it was always Jack that was the one that encouraged him to sing and pursue his passion. Johnny said after Jack died, after Jack was gone, I had no one else. I felt like I had died too. Oh, it's so sad. (laughs) I can't remember. Do you know, was Johnny there? I thought Johnny was there when it happened. There are conflicting stories about it. So we'll get into some of the things that are conflicting in his life. But the important thing is like he hung on for a week after. So they were with him and then he ultimately passed away. Now at the funeral, Johnny sang gospel songs and that evidently stuck with him throughout his life as well. According to his sister, Joanne, on the day of his funeral, Johnny went to the gravesite early. He took a shovel and began to help the workers dig Jack's grave. And at the service, his clothes were dirty from the effort. He wore no shoes because his foot was all swollen from stepping on a nail. So just like a very strong visual there. Someone that's super distraught, dirty, shoeless. Very sad. It's very visceral. Yes. People speculate, even to this day, that the funeral and Jack's death are the reasons why he continued to sing about spirituality and redemption throughout his career. And he was constantly talking about how, instead of saying the old adage of, what would Jesus do? He would ask himself, what would Jack do when he was faced with a difficult situation? And he also said a lot that Jack would show up in his dreams, especially if he were faced with a particularly hard incident. Jack would show up and then essentially give him the right answer, allegedly. Hmm. So that aside, he started writing songs and playing music around this time after Jack passed away. He actually learned guitar from his mom and a family friend. And his mom actually was there the exact moment that johnny's voice broke during puberty from like a little high-pitched kid to a deep (laughs) bass that he's known for today and during the moment she said god has his hand on you don't ever forget the gift so i think it was kind of a weird moment where they both realized holy this is a different voice and this is a unique voice that could be something (laughs) i know it's supposed i mean it is a very powerful moment but i kind of have the visual of like him having this squawky prepubescent <laughs> voice and then all of a sudden it cracks yeah. <laughs> like, so true. and then the angels sing and rejoice for johnny cash because <laughs> it's usually it's so embarrassing visual. when your voice cracks right? you know instead his mom is like god has a hand on you wow praise okay <laughs> amazing anyways throughout high school he went on to sing on the local radio station did various things with music nothing too significant yet with record labels or anything but he did sing on the local radio station so definitely had the musical bug in 1950 he enlisted in the air force and started his training in west texas and this is where he met his wife vivian He went on to go to West Germany and was stationed there. And throughout his entire time, he was still exchanging hundreds of love letters with Vivian. So their love Mm. kept burning, even from across the world. 
He actually worked as a Morse code operator on the Soviet channel. And he was the first person from like the Western hemisphere to learn of Stalin's death, which is so random. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. That's wild. Just a weird little fun fact there. Yeah. In 1954, four years after he enlisted, he was honorably discharged, and he went back to Texas, where he married Vivian, and they proceeded to have four daughters. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. Who run the world, girls? Lots cool. of estrogen going on in that household. <laughs> he also, totally random, but he got a scar from having to remove a cyst, so if you've ever seen pictures of him with a scar on his face, it's not from any crazy war story or the air force it's just from getting a sister moved <laughs> he didn't get into a bar fight yeah that was less no cool crazy stuff there so the family moved to memphis and johnny started studying to be a radio announcer but he had to make money for his family obviously so he sold appliances on the side and would play his music at night he wanted to keep pursuing this and obviously was a little bored by selling appliances as one would probably guess <laughs> and visited Sun Records to try to get a recording contract. But because his sound was mostly gospel at the time, he was denied. Wow. In 1955, he finally went over a producer and started recording his first songs. And these ended up becoming successful on the country hit parade, and things were never the same. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So by 1956, he was recording in the studio, and who drops by but... Elvis. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another person. All casual like the king strolls yeah, in. Yeah, just strolls in, probably in a weird suit. Who knows? <laughs> but anyways. Throw it over shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> Sunglasses on. Carl Perkins, who's a singer, was cutting new tracks. Johnny was in there. They were just kind of messing around. And the producer left the tapes running. So these songs that they all recorded together were eventually released under the million dollar quartet. I don't know if you've ever heard any of these songs. But, yeah, pretty iconic to have the three of them just randomly run into each other and record an impromptu album because the producer decided to leave the tapes running. Wait, do you know which songs were on the album? There were several. If you look up Million Dollar Quartet, you can find it. But highly recommend people looking it up because it's pretty good stuff. Okay, so just telling me, just Google it, Kate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fine, I will. Just Google it. He wound up touring with Elvis as his opening act, which I did not know, but wow. can you imagine the two of them performing together like every night at different venues? It's pretty fun. It was also this year that he met June Carter of the Carter family mm-hmm. while he was mm-hmm. performing at the Grand Ole Opry. Again, more foreshadowing. By 1957, he released Folsom Prison Blues, and arguably one of his most famous songs, I Walk the Line, was on this album. He wrote this song in 20 minutes. Whoa! (laughs) Yeah, pretty insane. And the song was considered a reminder to himself to stay faithful to his wife. And even though people told him, no gospel music, you can't do any of that, he snuck this song in as like a sneaky oath to God. So saying, okay, I'll still stay faithful to God. I'll still stay faithful to my wife. How crazy that you have to sneak in. Yeah. I I would think it would be the other way around. Kind of like Elvis, where it's more uh, risque and that you have to sneak that in, but... Yeah, Hmm. the song is, in a weird way, the perfect title for that, because it's like, what do you want from me? Like, I shouldn't be religious, but I can't be edgy, so I'm walking the line of the two. I don't know. Mm -hmm. 
quick note, I'm not going to talk about all of his albums because he obviously put out dozens and it would take all day to do that. So we're just going to talk about the highlights of his musical career. Sure. This album, Folsom Prison Blues, was on the country top five. And he became the first artist on Sun Records to release an LP, which is long playing for those musical buffs out there. You already know that. But he was the first person to do that, which is interesting. Like people really were just releasing EPs before then. Yeah, I didn't know that. Cool. He wanted to go to a bigger label at this point and receive higher royalties because at Sun Records, he was only receiving 3%, which the standard at the time was 5%. So he was kind of getting gauged a little bit by their royalty structure. And also Elvis had already left the label by this point. So Johnny was kind of like, eh, I think it's time to move on and find some bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. This time, like early in his music career, he was also starting to get teased by other artists. The more famous he got because of his habit of wearing black clothes. They called him <laughs> the undertaker. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> and he said it was because black clothes were just easier to keep looking clean on tour, which very logical explanation. It's very smart working. I agree. <laughs> One of Design Pickles Corvallis. <laughs> yeah. In nineteen fifty eight he signed with a bigger label, Columbia Records, you might have heard of it. Sure. And he released Don't Take Your Guns to Town, which was also one of his biggest hits. It was here that he also recorded some gospel songs, so trying to go back to the gospel vibes. And at the same time, Sun Records was releasing some of his backlog of recordings under their label, so he became the first artist to have two labels releasing his music concurrently. Wow. Music everywhere. It was also this year that he moved to California in hopes of starting a film career, like so many others before him. Yep. What? This always surprises me when I hear this with, like, musicians or artists that we cover that aren't in the film industry <laughs> right i want to be a star. crazy yeah huh. you wonder why it is i mean they're obviously super creative and maybe they just want to be tested in a different creative field who knows it's kind of an interesting thing that we're seeing over and over again anyways he obviously was making pretty good money at this point from his success and he bought johnny carson's old home down the street from where the jackson family would later set up their compound which was an encino whoa He ended up making his acting debut in a movie called Five Minutes to Live, and it was absolutely planned. Like, he did not do well. The film didn't do well. It was not a good move. I had no idea he was even in a movie at all. I know. What is it called? Five Minutes to Live. I'm writing that down because I want to look that up. It's wild. So because it was panned, it kind of made him rethink the film career. So he does one, and he's like, oh, I don't like not doing well at this. Maybe I should revisit. Yep. And this is also around the time that he started performing concerts at prisons and perhaps some foreshadowing here. We'll talk about that in a little bit. This is also not so coincidentally the time that he started drinking heavily and using methamphetamines and barbiturates to stay awake during tours. And he started going down a little bit of a dark path with that. Friends were getting worried about his erratic behavior. He was nervous a lot, but mostly they joked about it and kind of played it off and ignored the signs of heavy addiction that were kind of right in their faces. By the early 1960s, he was living in Ventura County and he started having problems with Vivian because of the drug and alcohol habits. She was getting frustrated. He was MIA all the time and it just wasn't a good situation. In 1962, problems escalated further when June Carter joined his touring group and started going out on tour with him. Neither one of them 
June nor Johnny ever disclosed when their relationship officially started, but it was around this time that June had referred to when she said, it was not a convenient time for me to fall in love with him, and it wasn't a convenient time for him to fall in love with me. One morning, about four o'clock, I was driving my car just about as fast as I could. I was miserable, and it all came to me. I'm falling in love with somebody I have no right to fall in love with. I thought, I can't fall in love with this man, but it's just like a ring of fire. Oh, so many goosebumps right now. Yeah. So again, Full body chills. Holy moly. Yeah. yeah. Timing a little bit muddy, but I think we can all surmise where this <laughs> ended up going mm-hmm. and what was going on at this time. By 1963, he was still spiraling from drugs and alcohol, but his wild creativity made it possible for him to keep churning out hit after hit. So his personal life was a disaster, but musically he was still just killing it. This is mm-hmm. also the year that he released Ring of Fire, which became a huge crossover hit, as we know. My personal favorite Johnny Cash song. I don't know about you. Now, didn't June Carter write that song? So it was originally performed by June's sister, Anita. And okay. Johnny created the horn arrangement that we all know. It's iconic in the song <laughs> and said yes. that it came to him in a dream. But Vivian, who he was still married to, disputed that Anita wrote it and said that Johnny wrote it, but gave Anita and June half credits for monetary reasons. So there's like a ton of conflicting information about how this song came to be. Hmm. We don't really know if Anita wrote it, June wrote it, or Johnny wrote it. We just know for sure that Johnny created the horn arrangement. (laughs) So, (laughs) And we just know that it is a beautiful song. Totally. And it's been covered by so many people since. Um, it was number one on the country charts and it cracked the top 20 on the pop charts. So huge crossover hit, huge song, still relevant today. You hear it a lot. Mm-hmm. Great overall, no matter who wrote it. Don't really care because they gave it to us. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Thanks, world. <laughs> Thanks, Anita, June, or Johnny. Um, in 1965, he went on a camping trip with his nephew, Damon, in the Los Padres National Forest. And Damon said getting into the passenger seat was his first regret of the day because Johnny was a terrible driver under the best of circumstances. <laughs> but it was clear from his day's look that he had already been into the amphetamines that he favored. So oh. they were pulling a camper with the car. And because Johnny was high and also a bad driver, Damon described it as a series of starts and stops that made the camper feel like something from a slapstick comedy. <laughs> Great visual. Great visual. (laughs) Oh, dear. But things got worse from there. So Damon was so upset by his driving and just, like, carelessness to do drugs around him that he didn't want to sit near Johnny as they stopped near a promising fishing spot. And he told him, I'm going to go fish over here. I don't want anything to do with you. And Johnny said, that's fine. I don't want to be by you either. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I don't want to be by you either. (laughs) Okay. Super mature. Yeah. So Damon ended up finding a pretty tranquil little stretch of water where he could fish and get his uncle off his mind. But his tranquility was broken by a strong smell in the usually pure Los Padres air. And it was smoke. It was coming from the direction of the camper that they had towed. Oh, no. So he rushed back over there and he found Johnny on his knees in front of the truck, fanning a fast spreading fire. And there was a spent package matches by his side. So Damon just took in the situation and figured Johnny had started the fire to keep warm and in his drugged state, let it get completely out of control. The wildfire ended up getting so big that it destroyed 508 acres and killed 49 endangered condors. 
Yeah. Not great. Not great at all. Uh I feel like this is a very, I don't know, this is a metaphor for Mm -hmm. (laughs) spiraling out of control. Also, super random, but last night I was watching videos of the wildfires in Australia and just how scary it is to see how fast fires travel and grow. I know. I mean, think about how small this one probably started, like... Damon said he probably just started it to keep warm and then it just Just matches got totally out of control so condors i know he actually was sued by the federal government for this because he destroyed so much protected land and when the judge asked johnny why he did it johnny said i didn't do it my camper did and it's dead so you can't question it He showed no signs of remorse. He also said, I don't care about your damn yellow buzzards. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, take some some responsibility here. Uh Uh-huh. So in the court case for the federal government suing Johnny, the federal government was awarded $125,000, which actually is almost a million bucks in today's day and age. Wow. And Johnny eventually settled the case and paid about $82,000 in restitution. So he said of the incident, well, I'm the only person ever sued by the government for starting a forest fire. Is he proud of that fact or? (laughs) Unclear. He was just stating the, I guess, obvious because who else has been sued? No one. Dang, Johnny, what did the condors do to you? The part I I found interesting about this is he's so seemingly self-aware and empathetic towards literally everything else in life, but he destroyed all this land and he was like, meh, (laughs) whatever. So you wonder if it's the drugs at that point that we're talking and not Johnny. Who knows? Oh, that's true. (laughs) Who knows? But things don't get better for him from here. Later this year, he was arrested for suspicion of smuggling heroin from Mexico he was not, in fact, smuggling heroin, but when they went through his stuff upon his return from Mexico, he was found to have 688 amphetamine pills and 475 tranquilizers in his guitar case. Dude, I mean, just having both amphetamines and tranquilizers. So you're just like on uppers all day and mm-hmm. then you'd go, oh, man, what a miserable yeah cycle Terrible. to just go through terrible so because these were technically prescription drugs and not heroin or something completely illicit he received a suspended sentence and the arrest was highly publicized he was completely on edge during the hearing he cursed at the reporter threatened to kick a photographer's camera just stuff that was not a great look for johnny at the end though he posted a fifteen hundred dollar bond and was released pending arraignment And it kind of sent him down a further spiral because now this was public information that he had a drug problem Mm -hmm. and he felt like a total hypocrite for singing gospel songs and telling people, oh, you can overcome your problems while he was deep in his own addiction problems. And not surprisingly, the media had an absolute field day with the photos of him being escorted out of the courthouse in handcuffs. Like it was everywhere. And Vivian, poor Vivian, was mortified. Oh, with her four daughters at home. Wow. Just a quick sidebar. He had been in scrapes with the law before, but until now, I mean, people knew of his drug use, but only the people that were in the country music circuit, no one in the public knew. So things really shifted for him then because now everyone knew. This is interesting, too, because 
a lot of the people we cover and even people we haven't covered, it's just kind of known that a lot of creatives, particularly musicians who have major substance abuse problems and the people in their camp know about it, but don't want to act on it because this person is like, you know, creating the livelihoods for everyone else. And it's just like, you got to keep them going. You have to keep performing and whatever it takes. It's just really sad, really sad to see that no one could step in until it gets to the point where like the public knows about it. That's such a good point. You wonder why these people feel comfortable enabling them. And you're like, well, they're making money from this person. They don't want to disrupt Mm -hmm. that. If the person goes to rehab, they're not making money anymore because they're not putting hits out. So Needless to say, from this time through the early 60s, Johnny was arrested for public drunkenness, reckless driving, drug possession, and even picking flowers. Wait, so, arrested for picking flowers? He was in a town in Mississippi called Starkville, and he was exploring the town, was hammered drunk at 2 a.m., decided to go into someone's yard and pick some flowers. Seems innocent enough, but apparently if you are hammered while you're doing that in a stranger's <laughs> yard, not okay. So he was arrested by local police and he was (laughs) put into the jail, but wasn't thrilled about this. So he started screaming and kicking at the cell door so hard that he broke his toe. Whoa. Yeah. This whole experience later made it into a song, not surprisingly. One other story from his jail days. (laughs) I'm picking my flowers, get arrested, (laughs) and then I kick and hit hurt my toe. That's exactly the song. song. How did you know? Love that song. So crazy. Yeah, me too. So (laughs) he also spent a night in jail in Carson City, Nevada, and don't know what he did there, but he was sharing a cell with a threatening lumberjack who refused to believe (laughs) it was actually Johnny Cash. So Johnny, to try to de-escalate the situation, spent most of the night singing his big hits and gospel songs to pacify his cellmate because he was so scared. And the man never ended up believing that he was actually Johnny Cash, but he fell asleep and Johnny survived the night. (laughs) Singing the lumberjack lullabies. I say all this because even though he never spent any great length of time, like he was never sentenced to jail time. He just spent nights in jail. He was arrested seven different times, spent a few nights in jail, got some perspective, which reminded me of the late, great Lenny Bruce as I was Mm -hmm. researching this. And so throughout his career, he empathized with inmates. And so he performed at a lot of prisons and a lot of people suspect that it's because he did spend a little bit of time in jail and, you know, see how it went. And he felt like these people didn't fit in and that he could help them with music. So just wanted to mention that because we all know how famous his prison albums are. With that, let's take a quick break. Hey, Jess, what do you call a pickle lullaby? I don't know, Kate. Tell me. A cucumber slumber number. (laughs) Oh, no. I did not see that coming. (laughs) Nope. That joke may have been the worst, but Design Pickle is not the worst. Definitely not the worst. And there's a reason that Design Pickle has been ranked on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in America for the past two years. And it's because they aren't the worst. No, Design Pickle offers flat rate, unlimited graphic design and creative services with unlimited revisions, brand profiles, a Zapier integration, Adobe source files, all that good stuff. And we have a special deal for all of you listeners. 
So if you're listening to our nonsense and you need graphic design help or custom illustration help, you can use the code WORST at checkout to get $100 off your first month of any plan. That's coupon code WORST, W-O-R-S-T, for $100 off any plan of design pickle, our essentials plan, our pro plan, custom illustrations. Just head over to designpickle.com and select the plan that's right for you and get $100 off. And get creating. So by this time, it's 1966, and Vivian was highly suspicious that Johnny was having an affair with June, which again, we don't really know, but we all signs point to yes. And also, women's intuition is a very powerful thing. Correct. They ended up divorcing. Vivian requested a divorce from Johnny, and she said at this time she would wait anxiously for him to get home and would literally sit at the window and watch for him because he was so caught up in drugs and alcohol that she just didn't know where he was, what he was doing, who he was with, what kind of state he was in. Man. She said that she imagined him in the arms of June Carter or dead somewhere of a drug overdose, and she prayed to see the headlights in the driveway that would prove her wrong. On most nights, though, she gave up around 1 a.m. and tried to grab a few hours of sleep before getting their daughters ready for school. This oh, I feel so, so sad. sad for Vivian. Yeah. Man. I mean, I think I had kind of an epiphany when doing this research because everyone focuses on how beautiful June and Johnny's love story was. And like, mm-hmm. we'll get to that. It's true. But people forget that he kind of put Vivian through the ringer. Not kind of. He did put her Not through kind the of, ringer. Yeah. And like this poor woman was trying to raise their children and had zero help. Oh, I just that that feeling of fear and anxiety waiting for someone to come home and then your own suspicions that i mean were confirmed i mean we'll find out we're true it's just so awful and and gut-wrenching and i think the movie walk the line shows that not in a good way i mean it's not good but really shows like what vivian went through and she wanted to be a good wife she loved johnny she loved the family and was trying to keep everyone together and Man, just it's already hard enough if you're married to someone, I think, who's famous and traveling for work and they're always gone. But then you add on the the layer of addiction and infidelity. It's just, oh, man, that's so sad. Great. And it's I'm glad you brought that up because during this time, I mean, he was gone about 80 percent of the time. He was never home anyways. Mm -hmm. And to worry on top of that, that the nights he was home, he was gone until God knows what time in the morning and she would sit and wait for him. It's just it's gut wrenching. I feel so bad for her. Mm -hmm. His daughter, Roseanne, said about this time as well. It just got to where it was like somebody else was coming home, not my daddy. The drugs were at work. He'd stay up all night. He and my mom would fight. It was so sad. He would always be having accidents. He turned the tractor over one day and almost killed himself. And we had to call the fire department after he set fire to the hillside. Another fire. Very reckless. Right? One time he took me on his lap and put his arms around me and said, I'm glad to be alive because the tractor could have rolled over on him. He held me so tightly. I felt so close to him. I wish it could always be like that, but then he'd be gone again. So sad. Come on. Yeah, not good. Do you think probably the the trauma of losing his brother at such a young age with a very kind of a freak accident is probably contributing to this recklessness at all? I think so, too. I mean, we saw him say, I died that day, too. And it kind of seems to me like he never got over that, even with a wife and kids and music. He just was so overwhelmed with probably survivor's guilt, honestly. Mm -hmm. So sad. 
So after they get divorced, Johnny moved to Nashville. He was still doing drugs. According to a documentary about his life, someone said overdoses and near overdoses were so common that everyone in the touring party cited various times and places. Johnny Western mentioned Waterloo, June Carter named Des Moines, Grant alluded to a string of towns. In addition, there were the near-fatal drug-induced accidents, including the time Johnny borrowed June's Cadillac and crashed it into a telephone pole, breaking his nose and knocking out his four upper front teeth. Yeah, it almost sounds like, almost like trigger warning, but like suicidal in a way. He doesn't want to live. He's just doing whatever, you know. Totally. Without thinking about the consequences. Yeah. So, allegedly, to break the tension, Luther Perkins came up with a piece of advice that people in Johnny's camp would repeat, which was, let him sleep for 24 hours. If he wakes up, he's alive. If he doesn't, he's dead. Which I find so callous. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Also, that's usually how that works. So, you know. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't know. So... On the flip side, and this is something that I find really interesting about Johnny because we see this throughout his career. So he's so reckless and self-destructive, but at the same time, he genuinely cares about people and wants to help people. And I didn't know this about him, but he was a huge activist for the Native American community and often sang about the history to raise awareness and almost confront Mm. the government about the way Native Americans were and are treated. So he would play benefits near historical Native American landmarks to raise awareness for them, raise money for them. And it was this year that he was having all these drug problems in... 1966 that he was actually adopted by the Seneca nation's turtle clan because they were so appreciative of all the work that he was doing on their behalf. Yeah. Wow. So it's just this weird dichotomy of like, you have reckless as hell Johnny over here and then you have charitable giving thoughtful Johnny over here (laughs) trying to help marginalized communities. It sounds like he cared about a lot of people. He just really didn't care about himself. Yeah. And a lot of that is addiction speaking because while you might hate yourself and have these destructive behaviors and you, you care about other groups and stuff like that, that addiction, uh, I mean, it, it's hurting people. It's hurting your family and your friends, even yeah. though it's inward to yourself. It's affecting other people that you love in, in really painful ways. Totally. So, yeah, it seems like he wasn't trying to piss off his wife. He wasn't trying to make his friends angry. He just really hated himself. Yeah. Those are the byproducts of it. Very well said. So... In 1967, he wins a Grammy with June for the duet Jackson, and it was also this time that there are rumors about a suicide attempt. Now, you've probably heard about this because it's talked about a lot, but the details are very much so all over the place. Johnny is very adamant that this happened, and people in his camp are like, there's literally no way that this happened. Like, not a chance. So Hmm. I'm going to spare the details... But basically, he said he had a spiritual awakening and realized he needed to go off drugs. Didn't end up happening because he was still on drugs after this alleged spiritual awakening. But yeah, so he said he wanted to commit suicide, but then he had a spiritual awakening during it and then was like, I'm going to be off drugs, but then continued to do drugs and Hmm. make music. So kind of a weird story. I think it's also important to note here, the people that said, yeah, this didn't happen, also were very quick to remind people of Johnny's storytelling abilities that we see in his songs and really every appearance that he ever made. He was an exceptional storyteller, and with that came a lot of embellishment and 
not lying necessarily, but maybe inflating the truth a little bit to make it sound more interesting. And people cite this story as a really good example of that, which is interesting. And I know you're not going to go over the details, but so he claims he did attempt suicide, but then survived or he... Yeah. Okay. He claimed he attempted it and in the middle of like just laying there waiting to die, had a spiritual awakening and wanted to get off drugs. So escaped. Interesting. Okay. It was also around this time, again, said he was going to go off drugs. Didn't. Got in a car accident in Georgia. The police found a giant bag of pills as per the use for Johnny. And he attempted to bribe the deputy Probably not good to bribe a uniformed officer. Just a thought. Usually not. He ended up talking to the sheriff who released him after a night in jail and a long talk. And the sheriff basically was like, you can't live your life like this. You're acting in a very self-destructive pattern. You can't make these choices. Basically like a dad. And Johnny credits this experience for helping him turn his life around and ended up going back to this little town in Georgia to do a benefit concert that attracted all these people, raised all this money that he ended up donating to the local high school. Hmm. So again, self-destructive, but <laughs> make it charity. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, yeah. yeah. So he did, in fact, clean up his act a little bit after this because he really wanted to marry June and she said repeatedly that she would not marry him until he cleaned up his act. That's so right. in 1968, he proposed to her in front of a live audience on stage. <gasps> I've gotten so many goosebumps in this episode so far. <laughs> she finally said yes. This was multiple attempts later that she finally said yes. But they got married a few weeks later. And... During this time, I did not know this either, and maybe you did from watching the movie and your general Johnny Cash knowledge, but his friends reportedly didn't love June for him because she was said to be super manipulative. And this was kind of talked about during this time, but nothing else really came of it. So I mm-hmm. felt it was important to mention. Well, I also think about the whole story of him proposing. It's glamorized as being so romantic. And I mean, it, it kind of is in a way. But also, I feel like that is sort of manipulative in a way, because he had proposed to her over and over again. She kept saying no. And then he does it on a huge stage in front of everyone, where she's kind of like, stop, like, let's, we need to finish the show. But he like won't take no for an answer. And so she has to say yes in front of everyone. I think. I mean, it also makes me think of like, uh, or just pro tip for people in general, don't propose unless you've already had that conversation, first of all, and Especially you know that the person's going to say public. yes. <laughs> and don't do it in public. Yes, thank you. That is, oh man. So cringeworthy. Oh my just, God. You're, you're in for a world of disaster if, if you do that. So <sighs> just, a, just another helpful tip from Creatives Are the Worst. <laughs> Add um, it to our list of you're welcome. hashtag tips. <laughs> yep we're still we're still going uh hashtag lint trap strong if you don't know what we're talking about go listen to uh the eddie murphy episode yeah go check that one out good callback kate good callback thank you <laughs> um, so after he marries june he released the live album johnny cash at Folsom prison due to his performance there and it was so successful that he followed it up with johnny cash at san quentin Both albums were dramatic successes. They reached number one on the country charts and pop charts. 
And this is actually when he became a quote unquote international hit because these albums surpassed the Beatles and sold 6.5 million copies, which is a big deal back then. In 1969, the Johnny Cash show came to be. So because the two live prison albums were so successful, ABC gave him his own show. And the show was performed at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. He would have guests like Linda Ronstadt, Neil Young, Neil Diamond, Ray Charles. The list goes on and on and on and on. Wow. Um, Bob Dylan was also a guest. And quick note about that. He was a huge champion of his work. And they were kind of fans of each other. And Johnny's been said to have nurtured and defended artists like Bob that were kind of on the fringe of country, but still country, which obviously proved to be a very good choice on his behalf because we all know Bob Dylan's legacy. Oh, yeah. We love Bob Dylan. Love him. Johnny often clashed with the network, not surprisingly, um, but he really just wanted creative control over it. It's very apparent. So Chris Christopherson performed on the show and they told him he had to cut the word stone from Chris's music. And Johnny was like, yeah, we're not doing that. So they left it in. He got his hand slapped by the network. He also brought Pete Seeger onto the show after Seeger's performance of an anti-Vietnam War song had caused a controversy on another network. So ABC was getting very frustrated with him because he just (laughs) did what he wanted, brought people on and caused controversy and was like, whatever. Don't care. Creatives. Am I right? (laughs) Might be the worst. Who knows? (laughs) So the show ran for about four years. It ended up getting canceled in 1971 due to a, quote, rural purge. First of all, I hate the word rural. <laughs> rural. So, the rural juror. The rural uh, purge. The rural purge. That's, that's a tough phrase. Isn't it, though? Like, I, yeah. Got to practice that one. If you want a tongue twister, try that at home. <laughs> but, hey, I guess around this time, a lot of rural-themed shows were canceled in favor of more urban and suburban content. So I don't really know what this means. I didn't really look into it further, but it's an interesting concept in the early 70s that they're like, we don't want farm people. We want city people. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Go for it. I guess. <laughs> don't know why. We might have to add that to our list of things to look into. But this is around the time that his public image as, quote, the man in black was solidified. Man in black, yeah. <laughs> he actually, in Johnny Cash fashion wrote a song to explain why he was the man in black. And he said he wore black on behalf of the poor and hungry and to mourn the lives lost from the Vietnam War. Now, yet again, this is something that people often cite as an embellishment because they call it back to the times that he said it was just because it was easier to keep clean. Mm -hmm. And people were adamant about that being a fact. They were like, he never really felt like that on behalf of the poor and hungry. He genuinely just did it because it was easier. So... Also, it's slimming. It's <laughs> just hashtag kidding, no. fashion. <laughs> uh, or, you know, maybe he just likes to wear it and people want to prescribe a reason for it. But it's like, that's just what I wear. I don't Everyone know. has their thing, right? Like, what is him wearing black affecting you? It's not. So whatever. Who cares? But by the mid 70s, his popularity and hits began to decline. And he was completely off drugs by this time. So completely sober. Wow. So he started doing various other projects. He was making commercials. He co-wrote and narrated and produced a film about the life of Jesus. He appeared on various television programs, including Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman with June, which I did not know. What? Just like, wait, can we also wait. What is this movie about Jesus? 
I don't even know. Didn't look into it further, but he was very fascinated by spirituality uh-huh. and ha- had a lot of spiritual things going on that were kind of all over the place, which is probably also part of his addiction. Maybe not, but yeah, the life of Jesus. <laughs> was interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So appears on TV shows. He actually was invited to perform at the white house for Richard Nixon's administration and the office of Richard Nixon had asked ahead of time, hey, can you play these songs? And he said, no, I will not play these songs, but I will play these songs instead. And many people viewed this as a blatant political stunt because he was obviously, you know, pro Native American rights and all that stuff. So he said that he didn't want to play any songs that would appear anti hippie. <laughs> so. Did his own thing, and Nixon actually even joked about it when introducing him, and he said something like, I only know one thing about Johnny Cash, and it's that he's not going to play the songs you ask him to. (laughs) (laughs) So kind of roasted him a little bit. Sure. By 1980, he was still not performing well in the charts with records that were being released, but he was still touring successfully, so still playing music. He also became the youngest living inductee to the Country Music Hall of Fame. He was only 48 years old. Wow. And he started actually recording and touring with the Highwaymen, which was Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, and Waylon Jennings. So they made some music together. Legendary crew there. Love it. He also appeared in several TV films around this time, including a film with Andy Griffith that was actually critically acclaimed. Need to see all of uh, Johnny Cash's acting debuts. This is like... Blowing my mind right now. Something that struck me, too, is how many cameos we have in this episode by other famous people. I think that's always Uh fun when that happens, and we've had that in a few other episodes, but he genuinely was surrounded by just uber-famous people pretty much his whole career. Sure. But in 1983, he relapsed. Funny how it happened. He... Is it? (laughs) It's kind of a weird happenstance, so... He had an ostrich on his farm and the ostrich (laughs) kicked him in the stomach and the injury was so severe to his abdomen from this ostrich kick that he was given (laughs) painkillers. Yeah. Okay, but ostriches are scary. Have you ever been around one in in real life? Have I told you my ostrich story? (laughs) No. I'm pretty sure I have. I think now's a a great (laughs) time for you to tell it. So we were in Canada one time because we lived pretty close to the Canadian border when I was growing up in New York, and we'd go to Montreal a lot. So they had this really cool open-concept zoo, right? So you could drive through and feed the animals. So there were, like, really cute water buffalo. Zebras would come up to the car, and you could feed them. And my mother, (laughs) Perry was in the trunk and like you drove five miles an hour right because they're animals wait in the trunk yeah, we had, like the hatch open like a big suv and oh, my dad was worried. my dad was driving and an ostrich comes up to the car and starts sticking its head in the trunk with my mom like where she's seated and so she starts freaking the hell out i mean i would too if an ostrich was like up in my business my dad being the asshole that he is in the best way was crying laughing could not get it together and refused to drive the car because he was laughing so 
That's so mean. And my mom was like, Brian, drive, drive, drive. And the ostrich is literally trying to like basically peck her face to get food. Oh, no. The entire car was laughing so hard. We had my grandparents with us. My sister and I are laughing. My dad is probably peeing his pants laughing so hard. And my mom was borderline getting attacked by an ostrich. Oh, no. And that See? Well, I mean, she had good reason to be scared after after an ostrich attacked Johnny Cash. Yeah, I mean, I mean, nothing was the same. Wow. So yeah, that story goes down in Guffy family history as one of the best because if that doesn't show my parents' dynamic, I don't know. Scary. What I mean, like they're big, fluffy things, but their necks look like hairy snakes with a beak. Well, it's part of just their necks are bald too, so it's like feathers, yeah. bald feathers, and oh my god, they freak don't me out like so much. Don't like it. And clearly they freak out on you if you're just trying to keep them on your farm, as what happened to Johnny. Hmm. So, like I said, kind of funny the way it happened, but not funny because it ended up resulting in his relapse, and that <laughs> is not Sorry, funny. I don't mean to laugh at that. It's not funny. But d- you said that it kicked yeah, him? Yeah, it kicked him in the stomach, and it caused so much damage because these, pardon my French, but these are mean <laughs> like kicked him in the stomach yeah, but like are there talons that picture <laughs> like a karate kick like getting off the rails <laughs> i know okay sorry days. sorry this is actually really sad but i need to get like the actual kick. visual of this ostrich karate kick yeah oh man uh, yeah we gotta get it together here so not actually funny at all but he did try to get better and was very cognizant of the fact that he relapsed after he had been so good for almost a decade and he entered rehab for the first time so i think we can probably credit this to june i mean she tried her absolute hardest to keep him off drugs she flushed pills down the toilet all the time she tried to hide them all that stuff so i think she was probably very happy about this move to go to rehab because progress right Mm mm-hmm In 1984, he left Columbia Records as a solo artist, but he stayed on with the Highwaymen, so they were still producing music. And by the late 80s, he re-recorded some of his best-known hits and did a duet album. So the duet album was pretty cool because his daughter Roseanne showed up on there. Just kind of a cool concept. He also, in this time frame, released his only novel called Man in White, Mm. which was about spirituality yet again. Also... If anyone noticed, not man in black, man in white. So don't know what that means, but we can probably make some guesses. In 1988, British musicians released a tribute album to Johnny Cash, and this really excited him and kind of reinvigorated him. He was feeling kind of down about his music career, how he wasn't putting out hits, but the fact that they created a tribute album that was new and different with their sound really led to his rejuvenation. And he also went to rehab again around this time. So don't know what was going on. If he was sad, went to rehab, and then felt rejuvenated. Timing's unclear. Man, it's a journey. It's a journey. journey. For sure. So by the early 90s, he was excited to make music again. He started working with producer Rick Rubin, and he released an album that he recorded from his living room called The American Recordings. And Rick actually is a huge credit to him. And Johnny had said after the fact that Rick made him believe 
that people would care about his music after he was gone. He was kind of feeling at this point, I mean, he'd been making music for so long, but he was thinking that he wasn't going to have any legacy. People wouldn't care. People wouldn't care if he died. Kind of an existential crisis going on. But Rick really is the one that turned him around and said, no, like you're still making music. You're still putting stuff out. Believe in yourself, dude. Probably an inspirational speech here and there. So crazy that, I mean, at this point he's already had such huge success and he's concerned that he won't be leaving a legacy or he's, he hadn't done enough. That's so, so sad. Right. Like, what are you trying to achieve? I mean, you've already done it. So is it, it sounds like torture. Sad. Honestly. But throughout the 90s, he was still working on various projects in the music industry. He did an album called Unchained with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers making appearances. Nice. There were also appearances from Lindsey Buckingham and Mick Fleetwood on this album. He did some things with U2. He did a duet with Paul McCartney. He did a collaboration with Brooks and Dunn. So he's working with people that are huge at this time Mm -hmm. and still feeling like he's not going to leave a legacy, which is very interesting. He also goes to rehab again around this time for the last time. And the son that he had with June also checked into the same rehab center a few months after he did. So I didn't dig into that because, again, there's not enough time. There's so much to talk about with Johnny, but kind of telling that his son also had addiction issues. Mm -hmm. In 1997, he released his second autobiography called Cash, the autobiography. Very clever name. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, if you got a, la- a last name like Cash, I mean, you, you run right? with it. It's so cool. He felt like the first one didn't do him justice and tell his story enough, so he wanted to tell it again in his own way. And it was also this year that after several misdiagnoses, he was diagnosed with autonomic neuropathy from diabetes, which in layman's terms essentially means that a lot of his vital functions were being affected. So movement, just basic brain decline is how I would describe it. Hmm. And because of that, because it was obviously a risk if he was moving around and he wasn't feeling great, he had to stop touring in 1997. Had no idea he was still touring at that point. That's I mean, that's been on 30, 40 years of touring at that point. Yeah. So in the early 2000s, he released two albums, one of which featured a cover of a Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt. Very popular. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Quick question, though. Do you prefer the Nine Inch Nails version or the Johnny Cash version? I kind of prefer the Johnny Cash version. Me too. We want to hear what you think, because a lot of people argue about that. I I prefer the Johnny Cash version. I think hearing it with Johnny's voice, he's older, and you can hear that like kind of grit and sadness and sorrow in his voice. Not to say the the Nine Inch Nails and and Trent Reznor's version isn't amazing. It's an amazing song, but... Ooh, I want to hear what everyone thinks. Email us at podcastdesignpickle.com. Yes, or DM us on Instagram. We check both, we promise. Sure. But I also found this interesting because I would never associate Johnny with Nine Inch Nails, <laughs> but I just think it proves how, I mean, he still was staying relevant regardless of how he felt about himself. This is the early 2000s. He's getting up there in age and he's covering a freaking Nine Inch mm. Nails song that became really, really popular. So yeah, just an interesting dynamic. In 2003, June passes away. She had a lot of health issues, Mm. a lot of heart stuff. I believe it was a leaky valve. And she ended up being convinced by Johnny to get the surgery that she needed to potentially save her life. But unfortunately, it didn't quite work. And he made the tough decision to take her off life support. 
Oh, man. An interesting thing about that is typically when people are taken off life support, they last about three hours, and she lasted three days. So I don't know if it was because Johnny was standing by her side the whole time, and, you know, you can speculate. But wow. I just thought that was interesting. And before she died, she told Johnny that he needed to keep working, which is something that he took to heart. So after June passed away, he recorded about 60 songs, which is crazy. Whoa. And at his last ever public performance in 2003, he said he had a whole statement written out that he wanted to share with the audience. So he said, the spirit of June Carter overshadows me tonight with the love she had for me and the love I have for her. We connect somewhere between here and heaven. She came down for a short visit, I guess, from heaven to visit with me tonight to give me courage and inspiration like she always has. She's never been one for me except courage and inspiration. I thank God for June Carter. I love her with all my heart. I know. So sad. So not surprisingly, less than four months after she passed away, Johnny also passed away. The clinical cause of death was complications from diabetes, but a lot of people say it was broken heart syndrome. Mm -hmm. And many said that when June died, they speculated that he didn't have much time because it completely tore him apart. I mean, he said the only reason to still live was because of music. And it just destroyed him to the point that he passed away, which is very sad. I wow. know. But their love has been said to inspire all the great country love songs, which I don't think is a surprise to anyone. Mm-hmm. So to touch on his legacy in his time, Johnny Cash wrote over a thousand songs, released dozens of albums He was the recipient of the 1999 Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. He has streets, trails, festivals museums in his honor he even has a spider named after him kate which i know you would love don't like that <laughs> the spider was actually found Not in the Folsom prison and they named it after him like a different species or it just like yeah. had a nickname <laughs> hey johnny no it was actually a new species of so John- spider and they oh. they made the scientific name so that it was like johnny cash johnny is Cass- cassius basically yeah after his death there was a biography release that showed the darker side of him like his addiction and frequent infidelity until this point it was said that the general public only knew about 20 percent of what went on in johnny's life so again he embellished stories he told the stories that he wanted to tell that's why i think when he got arrested and it became public knowledge about his drug addiction he was so devastated by that but this book really actually a lot of the information in the book is in this episode so we know a lot more now He also had a book of poems that were love letters to June turned into an album by modern artists like Casey Musgraves, Brad Paisley. That's called Johnny Cash Forever Words. And if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend. Super good. I will immediately. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, several portrayals, including the Oscar nominated Walk the Line, which Kate loves. (laughs) And he obviously, this is basically going without saying, but he shaped and reshaped country music over and over again. The last thing I will leave you with before we decide if he's the worst is in an obituary, it was said that he was one of the few performers who outlasted trends to become a mythical figure rediscovered by each new generation. Mm -hmm. So Kate, I ask you, is Johnny Cash the worst? Well, Jess, oh man, I'm so biased because (laughs) I'm a huge fan and a lot of the information you you spoke about, I already knew, but the new information that I didn't was more the positive stuff, (laughs) like fighting for Native Americans and whatnot. 
And not to say he didn't do really terrible things, because he certainly did. Was very, very selfish, very self-destructive, a terrible husband (laughs) to poor Vivian. Uh But with that, he clearly had addiction problems, and it is a disease. So it's a fight. I mean, like we said before, it's a lifelong journey, and it sucks. Uh, So I'm going to say no. Like, given his legacy and... He definitely dealt with trauma growing up. Totally. So creative. His storytelling is fantastic. Working with the communities is fantastic. I I love Johnny Cash, so I'm going to say no. He's he's not the worst. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think it's impossible to call him the worst. Um, He was so prolific in his career. He inspired so many generations of artists to come. The addiction stuff and the drug stuff is obviously not great, but like you said, I almost can't fault him for it. I think dealing with the loss of his brother really messed him up for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And while June helped straighten him out, I think it is a disease and he really didn't stand a chance to fully overcome it just based on how deeply entrenched that trauma was in his early childhood. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's any way we could call him the worst, but he definitely made a profound impact on the world of music, especially country music and honestly music in general. I mean, so many covers. Yeah. His gospel music, I mean, that has transcended time, too. And amazing to to hear that there was so much pushback on that. Like, the radios didn't want to play it. They were trying to get him to not create music with gospel tones. And it's so powerful. Gospel music is so powerful. It really is. So thank you, Johnny Cash, for bringing that to the larger masses, I would say. For real. If you feel like we are wrong and Johnny is, in fact, the worst, let us know at podcast.designpickle.com. Also, like Kate said, let us know which version of Hurt you like better, Nine Inch Nails or Johnny. You can also give us a follow on Instagram at creativesaretheworst or on Twitter at worstcreatives. I think that's it. I don't have anything else to share. Great job. (laughs) That was a wild ride. A lot of sad stuff, but what a life. What a life. What a legend. Until next week. Let's go walk the line. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Creatives Are the Worst. If you like what you're hearing, or if you think that we're the worst, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd love to hear from you. You can also contact us directly at podcasts at designpickle.com. And a big thanks to Design Pickle for sponsoring the show. Join us next week as we once again try to answer the question, are creatives the worst? <laughs>